0: Hello, and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by executive editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. And Don Thompson, author of the new book on the fables and foibles and functioning of the art market, uh, Orange Balloon Dog. Thanks for joining us, Don. Good morning. Don, uh, you're an economist, and you've written two books about the economics of the contemporary art market before this one, The $12 Million Stuffed Shark in 2009, and The Supermodel and the Brillo Box in 2014. Both books assume certain things about the contemporary art market, namely that prices for art are rational. They're the product of interactions between informed buyers and sellers. But you say in your intro to this new book that that premise has been shaken. What happened?
1: Well, two things. One, one is the, the buying that was going on at the very high end of the market. And i I'll, I'll tell you the particular incident that kind of pushed me over the, the the edge I was at Art Basel, Miami, and I was browsing a stand and there were a couple of pieces that were both expensive and beautiful and this New York couple came up to me in fifties came up to me and said, uh, "So what do you uh, like here?" And I said, "Well, I particularly like this war hall it's in front of us it's uh oh, I don't know a medium sized war hall it was a portrait, nice colors and she said, uh Warhol was an important artist, wasn't he? And I said, yeah, he's a a very (laughs) important artist. And she said, what would that cost? I said, well, I think they're asking $17.5 million. She thought from a turned to her husband and said, let's buy it. It's Christmas and it has really nice colors. The other thing, though, that that makes me cynical about the art market or made me question rationality are the prices being achieved at auction for middle-level works and the works of emerging artists. A couple of years ago, you had in one November auction round four artists selling for over a million dollars, none of whom had ever had a solo show at a major gallery. That's incredible. So,
0: how, how does this present moment in terms of like returning to the top of the market compare to the past when we're thinking about a rational price? Like, why is that $17.5 million for for the Warhol irrational and the $12 million Stuff Shark rational?
1: Well, you can argue this, there was some rationality to the $12 million stuff shark. This this is the title of my first art market book. $12 million stuff shark was Damien Hurst made by technicians. It was, at the time, it sold for $12 million, the second most expensive work ever sold by a living artist, after Jasper Johns. But it was, there was some logic to it. It was being sold by Charles Saatchi major name, major major branding t- to owning the work. It was being brokered by Kagosian. It was being sought by the Tate Modern, who made an offer for it. MoMA was thought to have made an offer for it. It was bought by New York uh, hedge fund operator, for whom it was said $12 million was four days income. The rumor, it didn't happen, but the rumor was he was going to donate it to MoMA and would either in return, or at the same time, get a board membership. Now think of how many New Yorkers might be willing to pay four days income for a board membership at MoMA. And if you think of that, it's not irrational. The stuffed shark ended up, as you know, for a number of months at the Metropolitan, uh, and was for the first six weeks of that, the most asked for item at the Metropolitan Museum. So if if you go back to that, maybe it wasn't so irrational.
2: One one thing I'm hearing kind of both of the examples that you're getting, both on the emerging side of the market and at the very top end of the market, is a, a shift perhaps in the art market from what you're terming rational actors that are kind of engaging with the main institutional entities in the art market, be those galleries, auction houses, museums, etc., to individuals who perhaps have no real basis in the market or at history or by which to make these decisions is that and and are maybe perhaps more trend driven in their purchases is that some of the irrationality that you see coming into the market
1: well there's probably a much more diverse set of buyers motives but what are the motives you can you can be told to buy for investment you can be told to buy as a store of value may not go up but it'll be a good store of value and the tax people may not know about it you can buy it as a positional good it proves how, what a patron of the arts you are and how wealthy you are. Or you can buy it for love. You want to live with it. You want to get up in the morning and see it. Each of those are different motives and they they produce different prices depending on your own level of wealth. So rationality is is kind of hard to measure. But there's a much more diverse set of motives than there were probably 20 years ago, particularly the store of wealth and the investment idea. And that distorts the market.
2: In the beginning of your book, I, I remember you kind of going into some of the more behavioral economics aspects of what influences price, uh, which is actually timely now because Richard Thaler just won the Nobel Prize. And absolutely. Uh, and and I was curious. You know, I remember you talking about the endowment effect, the wealth effect, et cetera. Do you think that those distort rational markets, or are just a kind of commonly accepted? F- functioning aspect of, of markets today, whether the art market or, or kind of more macro-level markets?
1: They've always existed. Uh, c- conventional economics had uh, assumed that consumers were rational beings and didn't have any of those failings. Richard Thaler and uh, Amos Tversky and others established that they did, and that's now accepted. The endowment effect is, is simply the idea that once you own something, it's worth more to you than it was before you owned it. It exhibits itself in several ways. Two years ago, there was a Medigliani came up for auction, so for $170 million. was owned by an Italian woman who had inherited it from her, her father, and she was offered $70 million for it. Now, $70 million at that point was the record for Medigliani. She was offered a $70 million guarantee. She turned it down. Now, if somebody had given her $70 million, would she, would she have spent the money on Modigliani? So you have this economic irrationality. If she has the art, she prefers it over the money. If she has the money, she prefers it over the art. If I had said that on an economics prelim, I would have failed because (laughs) it would have implied that people were irrational. It comes up in another way. When you are bidding at an auction, this is the endowment effect, and you momentarily have the high bid, the item is yours, and you will bid more than you expected to not to lose it, more than you came in expecting to bid because, damn it, it's yours, and that SOB across the aisle is trying to take it away from me. Once once you possess it, it's worth more.
2: When you were just talking uh, about the endowment effect as it relates to guarantees, I was reminded of a couple weeks ago when the 60 million pound Francis Bacon, or a Bacon that was had a reserve of 60 million pounds, presumably, um, failed to sell at Christie's in London. Is that an example, I guess a, a concrete example, of where somebody might have valued their painting more than the market was willing to give for it, and, and thus, you know, no buyers. I remember a quote where somebody said uh, all the buyers that they had for the room were looking around, but nobody dared to raise their hand first.
1: It was unquestionably overestimated and the reserve price was too high. Um, Auction houses would like to estimate works actually below their value. But if you have to provide a higher estimate to get a consignment, you do it. Now, the interesting part about that Francis Bacon was he didn't have a guarantee. At 60 million pounds sterling, no one would guarantee it. The auction house wouldn't. And presumably no third party would no matter what kind of fee was paid for it. So everyone thought it was overpriced. Now the interesting part is the high bid was 58 million. It got close. And uh, I don't know if it was sold privately afterwards, but that's pretty close. It's certainly higher than anyone thought it would go. The 60 million low estimate was also the 60 million reserve price. And that's unusual.
2: And looking just uh, yesterday or the day before, I believe, the leger that's now being offered as well without a guarantee, should we be looking at any instances where a guarantee isn't being offered as a potential instance in which the estimate or reserve may be overly aggressive in the market currently?
1: I, I don't think in can generalize. Some guarantees are offered free, others are offered by an auction house um, for a share of whatever the work sells for above the guarantee, sometimes 50%. So if you can get a free guarantee, you'll always take it. But you never know what the arrangement is is with the auction house. Having said that, generally, uh, as with the bacon, if you're operating at that level, 60 million pounds, you will find a guarantee. And if, if it's at that level and you don't find it either the consigner is very, very confident, or the uh, the reserve is, is pretty high.
0: Hopping back to the bacon for a second, there's obviously been a lot of speculation or, or thoughts about what that means for the art market. Is it, is it a sign of uh, tremors at the top? Like you said, it got to 58 million, so probably not. But h- how do you read into that? I mean, is it sort of emblematic of the fact
1: that there are, in reality, lots of different art markets at different tiers? Sure, and it it may say something about the market for bacon, But I don't think it says, you can't read anything from a single sale. Remember, at that level, a single sale is two very rich people competing. And sometimes the price is vastly higher than you think it would be because egos won't back down. And sometimes there isn't really a second person and the bidding dies. You can't read anything from a single sale. If you get a pattern of that over two or three auction cycles, get concerned.
0: So, Don, as I'm sure you know, uh, da Vin- the Da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi is headed to auction in the last painting by Da Vinci in private hands. It's kind of got an interesting backstory. Purchased by Yves Bouvier for 80 million and then turned around and sold to Dmitry Rublev for 127.5 uh, million. It's estimated, I th- there's a guarantee, I think, at around 100 million. Is that is that right? The estimate is 100 million. The estimate is 100 million. What, do you, what are your thoughts on, on this sale and, and what it, its backstory and what it can tell us? This,
1: this is a bizarre story in, in 10 different ways. S- Salvador Mundi is, is a Leonardo painting of Christ's uh, right hand raised uh, offering a benediction. It's a lovely work. It goes back to 1500. It's being sold at a contemporary art sale. Yeah That's the weird. first one. So characteristic.
2: Or is <laughs> that just now the expensive sale? <laughs> it's
1: being sold next to a war hall. Uh, with multiple images of the Last Supper. That's blasphemous, but nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> the history of this is goes way back. Let me say that there are only 20 known Leonardo's. This is the, the only one that is still in private hands and soon will not be. It has a, a, a long history. It goes back to Charles I of England. It goes back to Louis XII of France. I think it was made for Louis XII's daughter who became the wife of Charles First, and brought it with her as dowry. Anyway, it was lost. It was lost for several hundred years. It resurfaces in 2005 when three investors think they found it and buy it for $10,000. It's a good investment. Good investment. They have it restored. Every Leonardo expert in the world looks at it and said, it's authentic. So it's a newly discovered Leonardo. And they ask Sotheby's to sell it. So Sotheby's sell it to a uh, a Swiss uh, investor for $80 million. He turns around and flips it to a Russian oligarch for $127 million, almost $128. He makes $47 million flipping a work of art in a period of weeks. The three investors then threaten to sue Sotheby's because they undervalued the work. That's still ongoing. Mr. Ribolovlev, who is the, 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 the Russian oligarch, turns around and sues the investor who sold it to him in an ongoing suit for overcharging him by 50%. It now ends up back at Christie's, estimated at $100 million. Now, $100 million for the last, the only Leonardo that will come to market during our lifetime are that of our children. What? There have been, what, eight or nine Uh, contemporary works that have sold over $100 million. A Medigliani is worth $170 million. A Basquiat is worth $120 million. And Leonardo is worth $100 million. What is that about? Now, the best guess is that they've seriously underestimated it to bring people in. Because my guess is it'll sell for twice that. If you want a positional work to hang on your wall, you'd much rather have a Leonardo than a bass cat.
0: Yeah, and like you said, the story is so good. I mean, it's such a simple one too. It's like, this is the only Leonardo da Vinci not in a museum. It's like, oh, cool. That's a, that's a good little anecdote.
1: Yeah, I mean, my guess it'll, is it'll go to the Middle East, but to, to one of the, the three major museums in the Middle East, Qatar or, or Abu Dhabi.
2: It brings up an interesting question based on something you were saying before about how, you know, to not look at the top of the market, to understand the art market, because ultimately it comes down to egos and what money is worth to two people bidding. You know, the whole Bouvier-Reiblov scandal, as it were, is kind of interesting in that regard because people, two people agreed on a price as they might have at an auction house, yet in this case it's cast into doubt. I guess I, I'm curious what extent, why you think that there is such a difference in thinking when it comes to private sales um, versus to uh, exuberantly irrational bidders in an auction house floor?
1: The process of a private sale and an auction sale psychologically are very different. In a private sale, you wander in a gallery, you see a work you like a lot, you think, it might look wonderful in the house, and you ask the dealer to hold it for you, and over the weekend you bring your wife and you look at it. And you still like it, and so you say, "Can I take it home and hang it for three weeks and see how we live with it?" And you do. So it's a small, it's a slow ration process, and you probably go back and say, "Mr. Dealer, we have a long relationship, uh, in respect of which I would expect a ten percent discount." You probably get it. So it's it's a reasoned purchase, an auction purchase. In auction school, they teach you that bids should come one and a half seconds apart. That is long enough to raise your hand, but not long enough to think. So in in the auction process, you're sitting there, and bids are going up quickly, and somebody you know across the aisle who you'd hate to, to lose to in a financial transaction during the day is trying to beat you out of this work of art. And it's it's just different. Besides which, there's an additional benefit to be seen publicly not to back down and lose as opposed to be seen publicly to back down and lose so winning at auction gives you more value than buying from a dealer it's a different process has different rewards
0: it's interesting because i was listening to a, a panel on art fairs and law and logistics and one of the panelists was a dealer who was talking about how art fairs one benefit they give dealers is to simulate not exactly but some of the pressures of the auction environment because they can, you know, someone walks it to a booth at a three day fair. It's only three days long. The dealer can say, Oh, I, around the corner. I have another guy. He just walked out. He wants to buy this work. Are you going to buy it now or not? He's, you know, and that's part of the, the reason why fairs have their appeal it's because they mimic auctions in certain ways or, or kind of mimic simulate some of the pressures. But even hearing you talk, obviously there's not the endowment effect of like a split split second bid. You're not going to get into that.
1: Well, the art fair process is sort of in the middle of the two. When the market is hot, yes, dealers will do that. During the VIP or VVIP opening, before the public gets in, you'll look at work and say, will you hold that for me? And the dealer will say, several other people are interested. I'll give you a 15-minute hold and give me your cell number. But the other thing that happens for an important work is that everybody understands that the dealer would prefer to sell it to a high-profile place. So you get some benefit just by winning it because you're seen as more high-profile than the other people who bid on it or you think bid on it. So if the dealer works it properly, you can you can simulate some of the pressure of an auction.
2: So looking ahead a bit, um, if the most significant development in the last five or so years within the market has been that it, it switched from rational to, to irrational, is that necessarily a bad thing? And I guess following on from that, how do you see it developing in either paradigm?
1: Well, if collectors and investors begin to think their market is not rational and they lose confidence in the advice that dealers are giving them and then auction houses, auction specialists are giving them, then you have a real problem. There is a huge backlog of works in storage now, there are, there are six major and, and about six secondary art warehouses, uh, duty-free warehouses around the world. There's one in Geneva, in Geneva Airport. It is the size of about eight football fields. I used to, in, in, in lectures, say there were, uh, in all, all these warehouses, there were probably a million works of art. The Canton of Geneva, which owns the majority part of the Geneva, says there are a million, 1.1 million artworks in Geneva alone. Now multiply that by six others and a number of minor ones. And there's an awful lot of work in storage. It's in storage either for investment or as a store of value. And a lot of it is owned by people who trade in the financial markets, and when the market begins to turn down, they sell. You never want to be the last one out the door. Now, if any quantity of that work hits the market, guess what happens? I mean, a major auction house will take 70 works for each of its three major sales. Uh, what happens? And, and dealers will take some consignment. But once prices start going down, once the market seems to be cratering, there are no buyers, there are lots of sellers, and we are back where we were, uh, I don't know, 1990?
2: So you think essentially that demand is... is- too thin within the market itself for the amount of work that's out there?
1: It isn't so. maybe so much that demand is thin. It's that no one wants the embarrassment of buying, of paying too much, visibly paying too much. So it's like house prices. When house prices are seen as going down, everybody holds back. It's only when they seem to be turning the corner that people buy, and that's that's why they turn the corner quickly and go back up. Is that There's a, a group perception that you reach the bottom until that happens in the art market, there will be sales, but they'll be at deep discounts.
0: All right, Don, before we let you go, I think we should probably ask you, where does the title Orange Balloon Dog come from?
1: Well, the Orange Balloon Dog is a a Jeff Koons sculptor, one of a series of five. Its significance is it sold uh, at auction for $57 million, which is the highest amount uh, ever paid for work by a living artist, 50% higher than the previous record. It had a number of interesting characteristics. One was that you would think that Christie's would make a lot of money on a sale at that level, and it almost certainly lost money auctioning the item. This came about because, of course, auction houses make money in two ways. They, they charge commissions, and they charge buyer premiums. Now, if you can sign a work over $5 million, you get your commission waived. And if you don't get your commission waived, you better find a different agent. So that leaves the buyer premium, which over $2 million is about 12%. Now, auction houses need a a star work for the cover, but they need it because that's what's reported in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. That's what gets pictures and feature stories done about the auction. That's what is thought to draw other pieces, other consignments to the auction. So for the feature work, and the Bloom Dog was the feature work when it was auctioned, You pay what you have to pay, and sometimes that requires rebating the buyer's premium to the seller. The seller of the orange bloom dog announced that he had been given 112% of paddle, which means 120% of the selling price, which means the entire buyer premium was rebated to the seller. Now, why would you do that? Well, because you need the feature work, because you want to deny it to the other auction house. in this case, LBs or because you think having it will will bring in other works for consignment that will make up for the loss. Christie's probably spent $2 million simply promoting Orange Balloon Dog. They had to move it from Connecticut to outside their headquarters in Manhattan. They had to insure it. They had to guard it 24 hours a day. They ran numerous full-page ads promoting it, but they probably thought it was worthwhile, but they lost money on it.
2: Christie's seems to have remained fairly steadfast in that strategy. But in the intervening years, it seems like Sotheby's has shifted uh, to a bit more of their businessman-minded uh, a- approach to auctioning. I wonder how, even looking at that sale, how you think the the auction market has has developed since then?
1: Well, both auction houses have gone through uh, upheavals in the last uh, 18 months. It is um, Christie's, of course, is privately owned, and so they can do things like that, uh, and uh, they don't have an answer to, to multiple shareholders. Sotheby's probably is not doing as much of it. But having said that, I've never heard of 112% paddle plus, except in this, in this one situation. And the interesting part was that Peter Brandt, who was the consignor, Told the New York Times about it. If you got a deal like that, I would think you would be very quiet about it. But he was not. Uh, but one hundred and seven percent paddle plus is a, is fairly common for a feature work, so it does it still does exist. So
0: if we're thinking about rationality, I mean, is this a, is offering this kind of. Massive paddle plus a rational decision, or do you sort of see auction houses falling uh, prey to to the egos uh, that that they're often selling to as well, because they don't want to lose the star lot to to their rival since it is a duopoly more or less.
1: Well, they they think Christie's in particular thinks it is rational in and of itself because it it, it attracts more bidders and it attracts more consignments. It's rational from another sense, and that is Christie's and Sotheby's have, over a long period of time, they're roughly balanced in that they have about 50% of the high-end auction market each year, each. If that gets out of whack, and let's say Christie's goes and has 75% of the auction market, there's a real chance that it, it becomes a, a winner-take-all game. And you will always then consign to the auction house with the biggest base of bidders and the biggest base of interest. And so if an auction house gets below about 40% market share, it starts to worry tremendously about its future, and it will do more to get back up to 50%.
0: All right, so Don, where are you going to be drinking white wine in the art world this week?
1: I'll tell you where I'm not going to be drinking white wine. Okay. I'll tell you about a very very depressing art experience. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I was at the Venice Biennale, and I visited Damien Hirst's show at the Plaza Grassi. It's called Wreck of the Unbelievable. It is a large collection of fake antiquities, and they're openly fake. There's no there's no question about it. He, he produced them, aged them. A number of them have been sold, which is also depressing. The works are so interesting, but they're intentional fakes, and, and and I found that very depressing to see. There is no life to them. There's no implied background. There's no history. There's no backstory. You can't even imagine where they may have been, what they might have done. They were made the previous year in a factory in England. And the entire show was just depressing. Probably in the same way if I show you a fake Picasso and said, what do you think of this? I'd say, well, on its own, I guess it. Has some merit, but it's a but it's a fake, and so it has no life. If I had to recommend a better place to drink white wine, there's a Georgia O'Keeffe show. I don't know where it's on now. It was on at the Art Gallery of Ontario uh, a couple of months ago. Great show. Uh, all of us know a little about Georgia O'Keeffe. Uh, great to see her life her life work and things you've never thought of. Alex, I
0: know uh, you've actually recommended the Damien Hirst show on a previous white wine. For a very different reason. For a very different reason.
2: Because it is like a, like a mall, art <laughs> mall. You just go buy a bunch of stuff.
0: But for this week, what are you going to be doing? What are you going to be drinking white wine?
2: Um, I am going to go to the Whitney to check out the Jimmy Durham show, which I believe is actually traveling from the Hammer Museum in LA, uh, but at the center of the world. It opens on November 3rd and runs until the end of January.
0: I'm going to see an exhibition that's drawing from works in the Robert Lehman Collection at the Met that's kind of chronicling the development of drawing from the Renaissance of the early 20th century. Um, it's always fun to visit the Robert Lehman Collection at the Met because it's this museum within a museum. Uh, you can even like sit in an approximation of his living room and kind of look at the artwork and that's not an experience you normally get. Um, and so that, that's always fun. All right, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much to our guests for joining us. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Of course, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at See you next time. Our producer this week, as always, Associate Editor Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free.